have a Bible by any chance. Um, I don't know if anybody would find themselves here in that situation, but there's a stack of Bibles just like this back on that back table and um, brand new wrapped up. And if you need one, be sure to grab one. Uh, they're our gift to you. Um, we don't need it back. Uh, take it home, uh, read it, and enjoy it. It's uh, uh, something we always want to do, be able to put God's Word in people's hands and enable them to read and study and apply God's Word uh, because therein is uh, an opportunity to have your life renewed. Uh, if you have watched the news this week, you know uh, about events in uh, Newtown, Connecticut. Um, murderer went on a rampage in a locked schoolhouse, killed 26 people, most of them children, before he turned the gun on himself. And if you were here last week, you remember that one of the, the things that I addressed in that uh, sermon was the question, where was God? Something that always comes up uh, whenever that anything terrible like that happens, that question gets asked, and it's you know there's always a lot of times answers that are sought. Uh, I would guess that in uh, that portion of Connecticut, uh, that some churches there are, ex are experiencing greater than normal attendance. And truthfully, if you look at your Bible, the Bible does supply us with all kinds of good answers to all kinds of great questions, including that one. And one of the answers that it provides to that question, where is God, when these kinds of things happen, believe it or not, is Christmas. I can tell you that I like Christmas as much as the next guy. I really do. I, I get into it. I'm basically a big kid. You're, my wife could tell you. Uh, I like the stockings, I like the tree, the candy, the spiral sliced ham, the parties, the Christmas music, uh, the gifts, the cold and the snow that will hopefully be here uh, for Christmas Day. I like it all. I love every bit of it. But what it's, those things are really you know nice and they're fun and you know you get to see old friends and family come in and 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 that's great. But that's not really what Christmas is about. What Christmas is really about is, a, is that God himself came down and invaded our world on a mission to put the world that is broken back to right once more. Those of you who are a certain age will remember a, a certain date if I give it to you. June 6th, 1944. Remember that date? Some of you do. Some of you who are younger have read about it in a book. It's D-Day. The day when the Allies landed at Normandy, at places like Sword Beach and Utah Beach and Omaha Beach, and they clawed back the continent of Europe from the Nazis. And it was, the, it was the day on which the invasion began, but there was still a long fight ahead. There were things like the Battle of the Bulge that would come up. Battle of the Bulge was the bloodiest Allied fighting in the entire war. In the entire war they lost 100,000 troops in the Battle of the Bulge. Try to even imagine that. 
In the last decade, I think in, in total, in Iraq and Afghanistan, we've lost about 7,000 guys. 100,000 men came home in coffins from the Battle of the Bulge. There was a lot of fighting left. But victory had already come. And it had already, been, been, it had already begun because the invasion had started and the armies of the Allied forces were advancing on Berlin. And one day that evil was going to be wiped out. And everybody who perpetrated it driven out of power, and in some cases put to death. And in many ways, Christmas is that. It's the day when God invaded humanity. When God took on a human body, took on flesh, lived among us, and fought a great victory. And victory, final victory, hasn't come yet. But it's coming, just as he promised. Amen? Final victory is still coming. And God, lo- because God loves us, he came into our world. You know, Christmas is the story of a God who not only loves us, but loves us enough to wade into the darkness and evil and sin of this world. And take that very darkness and evil and the punishment that it deserves on himself so that the people of this world can be restored and healed to relationship with him. And Christmas is is about how God is not removed. He doesn't watch this world unfold like some sort of absentee landlord. But he's willing to wade into the muck and the mire of human life as one of us to deliver us from the mess and the destruction that we bring on ourselves and on those around us. And what's more, God told us he was coming. You know, unlike the allies at at Normandy who didn't announce where they were going to arrive, God announced over 300 times in the Old Testament that he was coming, where he was coming, what family he was going to come from, Uh, where he was going to be, what time he was going to be there. Over 300 times gave us specific information so that when he showed up, that no one could miss it. And I want to look at just a few of those with you. We're not going to look at all 300. Be here all day, probably part of tomorrow. Uh, But I want to look at just a few of them with you. To remind us all that God is a God who not only has come at just as he promised, but is coming again. And that if you look at, back at the promises that he kept in his first coming, you can have confidence in the promises of his second coming. Because since God came just as he said, in very specific ways, just like he said, that when he promises that he is coming again to put the the world finally right, that we can trust in those promises too. First one I want to look at is Genesis chapter 3, 15. Uh, God has been demonstrating his love and his care for us ever since we needed it. Genesis 3, 15 is the first place we really needed it. 
Genesis chapter 3 is the record of the fall into sin, how our first parents, Adam and Eve, uh, rebelled against God in the garden. God knew, though they didn't, all of the hell on earth that would be unleashed by their rebellion against him. So he commanded them, don't rebel against me, do what I say, and I'll walk with you daily in the garden and reveal myself to you. But nevertheless, Satan came in in the form of a serpent. He lured them into sin, and they rebelled and violated God's command. And in that act, they cast themselves and all their descendants after them into rebellion and opposition against God. And that rebellion takes a multitude of forms. It can take the form of idolatry or coveting or immorality or greed or warfare or schoolhouse slaughters. And so God has to punish and judge rebellion. And he does, both now and in eternity. And in Genesis, he is giving the announcement of judgment. Judgment on the man and judgment on the earth and judgment on the serpent and judgment on this woman. And even even as he is announcing judgment, he also is telling them, but I love you, and I'm not going to allow judgment to be the only word spoken. And so he offers hope, and he he talks about one in chapter 3, verse 15 of Genesis, of who is called the seed of the woman. I like that old word because it translates the Hebrew there very well. The seed of the woman. One who will crush the serpent and who will... Restore what sin has destroyed and broken. Now, that little phrase, the seed of the woman, that is a strange phrase for Hebrew. Because in Hebrew thought, women do not have seed. They can have offspring, but it's men who have seed. Men who have seed. So how is this going to happen? How is this going to work that a child will be born who will be born of woman and yet be the seed of a woman how does that happen that contradictory to their normal pattern in Matthew chapter 1 verse 18 Matthew tells us now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. She was a virgin girl. Normally speaking, virgins do not have children. There are some complications involved in that. Uh, Virgins don't have children any more than women have seed, biblically speaking. And yet God kept his promise that he issued all the way back thousands of years previous, that a child will be born who was born the seed of the woman, a particular woman, Mary. And he did it just that way so that Jesus would be fully human, have a fully human nature, be completely in all ways a human being like you and me. And yet will be born without a sin nature because the sin nature, according to the scriptures, is passed down from Adam through the father. And since every human child has a human father, every human child receives a sin nature passed down from Adam. 
Jesus is born with no human father, born the seed of the woman. And so therefore he is born with a human nature, without a human father, thus without a sin nature. The Messiah also had to be born of a certain family. He had to be the descendant of Abraham, and the descendant of Abraham's son Isaac, and the descendant of Isaac's son Jacob, and the descendant of Jacob's son Judah. Remember, we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, Genesis 49, verse 10. We read Jacob's prophecy that Judah's family is going to be the royal house. The Messiah is going to be king. And we read in, in Genesis 49.10, uh, it says that he must reign until the throne comes to Shiloh, to whom it belongs, the Messiah. And his coming will mean, verse 11 and 12 of Genesis 49, that the messianic age will begin when his rule begins. And again, in, Gen- in Matthew chapter 1, verse 3, we read that Jesus is indeed of the line of Judah through his son, Perez. And Perez, if you remember, is one of the boys, a set of twins that result from Judah's sin with his daughter-in-law. And again, I think that's another scriptural example of how God and his coming is not coming in some sort of white-robed, Descent down onto the earth. He is coming in the midst of the muck and the mire of human existence, coming in the midst of a sinful family, coming into a family line that shouldn't exist if people are living according to the way that God would design. And yet, he comes through the line of Perez that even grievous human sin is not something that thwarts God's plan. In fact, it's something that God uses to accomplish His purposes. And though God is grieved by it, the Messiah comes about partially even as a result of sin to defeat and conquer sin. If you go over, if you leave Genesis and go over to Exodus, you see that Jesus is indeed the true Passover lamb. You look at Exodus 12, verses 21 to 27, you get the the regulations for how the Passover lamb was to be sacrificed in the late afternoon, and its blood to be put on the doorposts and the lintels of the houses, marking each of these houses as those who believe the Lord's word, and that the destroying angel would pass over, which is where the name comes from, those houses when the final plague of the the death of the firstborn fell on Egypt, and those who put their trust in the blood of the Lamb were saved from destruction, and those who were slaves to Pharaoh all their lives were set free that very night by the sacrificed blood of the Passover Lamb. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, Paul talks about Jesus Christ, our Passover Lamb, who has been sacrificed. He ties Jesus' death back to Passover because he recognizes that the events of Passover were not simply for the people of Israel on that day, on that night, and as a tradition to be commemorated later, they were also for us. They were symbolic and prophetic of the deliverance that the Messiah would bring because the doorposts of the houses were made of wood, the symbol of the tree through which Adam and Eve sinned and the death their sin brought. The blood on the doorframe made a bloody cross 
If you put blood up here and you put blood out here, what do you got? You've got a bloody cross made of wood, just like the true Passover lamb Jesus Christ died on. And the covering of the blood of Jesus protects those who put their trust in him far better than the blood of the Passover lamb. Amen? For it covers our sin and keeps us from death, not just for a night, but for all eternity. And God passes over our sin when he sees the blood of his son, the perfect Passover lamb offered as a sacrifice for us. And God, instead of slaying the firstborn of those who failed to put their trust in him, instead slays his firstborn, puts him to death, that he might pass over the sins of not just the godly Israelite, but all people on the entire earth for all time, if they would put their trust in the blood of the true Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. And in addition to this, God made a promise, if you skip forward several hundred years to David, that the Messiah would come not just through any line of Judah, but through his royal line. In 2 Samuel 7, 12 and 13, God says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, and you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, if you read through Kings or you read through the book of Chronicles, you read that every descendant of David eventually died. You can read all the way through, and you can read about guys like Hezekiah and Uzziah and Asa and, and Josiah and all these great kings that descended from David. But you know what? At the end of each report, it's, and this, was, this guy was a good king, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and he walked in the ways of his father David, and he reigned this many years, and then what? And then he died. And then eventually they get a succession of bad kings, and they go into exile, and no one after Zedekiah sits on the throne of David anymore ever. So how is this promise going to be kept that God is going to make a descendant of David a permanent throne that lasts forever. Well, Matthew tells us in his genealogy. You know, you sometimes you look at the scriptures and you read these genealogies and you go, why is this here? Who is this blessing? But God put it there for a specific purpose. He put it in Matthew for a specific purpose. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. He put it there to remind us that Jesus Christ is the ultimate son of David. And in fact, even the way that Matthew structures his genealogy, you may not know this, but you know, if you read those lists, and it says, and there were 14 generations from this person to this person, and 14 generations from this person to this person, and 14 generations from this person to this person. It's like, clap, 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 Matthew, you can count. Why do you tell us that? Okay, the reason he tells us that is this, is that the number in Hebrew, which is equivalent to David, is 14. And so in emphasizing their 14 generations here, the, G, the son of David, 14 generations, David, 14 generations, David, 14 generations, David, 
He's trying to, to make sure that anybody who's reading this who's a Jew who knows that is going to not miss Jesus is the son of David. The one that was promised. The one who's going to have the eternal throne of David. God is a God who keeps his promise. And, he, and this son of David is going to reign forever, just as God said. And in addition to being son of David, he's also the son of God. If you look at 1 Chronicles 17, I bet this is a book you have never opened. But look at 1 Chronicles 17 with me, okay? Or at least you don't have anything highlighted in 1 Chronicles, but you need to. Take a look at this. 1 Chronicles chapter 17. 1 Chronicles 17. Verses 11 to 14, this is the chronicler's reiteration and recounting of the, the covenant that God made with David. It says, when your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son, and I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you. That's Saul. But I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his kingdom, his throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Now what's interesting about this and why I bring this up is this. That back in 2 Samuel 7, as God gives the original statement, he talks about how some of David's sons are going to fall into sin and that God himself is going to chastise him. But the chronicler leaves all that bit out. Why? Well, I don't know if the writer of Chronicles understood this or what the significance of his omission was, but the writer of Hebrews makes it real clear. Chapter 1, verse 5, where he writes, To which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, the day I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. In other words, Jesus is greater even than the angels. Jesus is the greater son of David. God the Father is really the father of Jesus, in the way that he was not for any of the other descendants of David. Instead, Jesus is literally, not metaphorically, literally the Son of God, the one who existed with the Father from before there was time or creation, yet also in a unique way is the Son of David, just as God promised. If you look at Isaiah chapter 9, it's a famous messianic passage, and a lot of us are familiar with its later verses about, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders, right? And it's great. And, and if, if, by the way, you don't know those, listen to Handel, and he will teach you, right? Wonderful counselor. You know, you can, it's great stuff. And this time of year is the best time to listen to that kind of stuff, right? Uh, and, you can, and you can memorize some Isaiah. If you have trouble with Scripture memory, dig out the Messiah. You'll remember some Scripture as you learn that, right? But if you look back earlier in the chapter, in verse 1 and 2, you'll see that these, these things are not just about 
who the Messiah will be, but about where his ministry would begin. Verses 1 and 2, let me read them to you. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, <coughs> the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. Where did Jesus do most of his ministry? In Galilee, right? exactly the place that Isaiah specifies. And what's strange about that is that it's not the place that you would go if you're trying to build up your ministry. If you want to be renowned, if you want to be prominent, you'd go to Jerusalem. Because religious purity... (coughs) ...believed to radiate out from there. And the citizens of Jerusalem were believed to be the most blessed and the nearest to God. The citizens of Judea next, and the citizens of Galilee last. Down the list quite a bit. Uh, Somewhere above the uh, Samaritans and above the Gentiles. (coughs) According to Matthew... Chapter 4, that's exactly when he, where he went. When Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. In other words, Jesus came not just to minister to nice religious people, but to people on the margins. People who were disregarded and pushed aside and forgotten. Jesus came for the sinners. Those who were dwelling in the region and the, of the valley of the shadow of death, as Matthew has it, he came them just like the prophet said and 800 years before jesus the prophet isaiah said he was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces he was despised and we esteemed him not surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by god and afflicted but he was wounded for our transgressions he was crushed For our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of his all. And Isaiah writes, in other words, about Jesus, the man who came to put an end to sin, who would himself die like he was a sinner. Though he would be rejected and put to death unjustly, that very rejection and death were part of God's plan to end our rejection of God and to put an end to death forever. And just as Isaiah said what happened, Matthew tells us that it did. If you look at Matthew chapter 26, verse 1 
1 to 3, it tells how the leaders of the people, including the priests, who read the scriptures, who knew what they said, they nevertheless rejected Jesus and conspired to bring about his death. When Jesus finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. And the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. And Jesus was rejected and killed, just as Isaiah prophesied 800 years before. Just as the chief priests and the leaders planned, Jesus was rejected and put to death. And if you still have your finger in Isaiah 53, look at verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. For he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. <coughs> Peter tells us that this, too, was fulfilled in Jesus. If you look at chapter 1 of 1 Peter, verses 18 and 19, the apostle says, You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus' death was an anguished, painful, terrible, horrific, torturous thing. But it was the very thing that God was using to bring about the redemption of the world and to make righteous all who would trust in him. The fact is, this has been a shocking week for a lot of people. And we ask one another, how could somebody do that? How can you go into a classroom and shoot kindergartners? How can you shoot school teachers trying to protect their kids? How can you do that? What kind of sick person does that? And these things are examples of the deep evil that is present within human beings. Not all of us are murderers. Not all of us are that level of sick and depraved. But if you watch the news next week, if you watch the news today, you'll probably have another example. Human depravity in one form or another. And in fact, your next trip to the bathroom, look in the mirror. And you'll see another example of human depravity. Again, we're not all equally guilty of all the same kinds of stuff. But we all stand guilty before God of all kinds of stuff of which we are justly ashamed and for which God would justly judge us. But here's the thing, and here's where the joy of Christmas comes in. If you really understand what Christmas is about, 
This is where the joy is really rooted and found. It's that Jesus came just like God promised over and over and over and over. Over thousands of years, God promised the Messiah is coming. Messiah is coming. Messiah is coming. Messiah is coming. This is where he'll be born. This is what family he's going to come from. This is what father he's going to have. This is the town where he's going to be located. This is even what time, based on the rebuilding of the temple, his ministry will end. All kinds of specific things, even in the manner in which he was to die, which was predicted about 300 years before the invention of the technique. All these things were predicted in detail so that no one could miss it. And you know, here's the deal. I think I've, I don't know exactly how many prophecies I've been through here. But a mathematician one time calculated the odds of Jesus fulfilling just eight of the things that are said about him. That for one man to fulfill just eight things is something like, 1 in 10 to the 28th. Okay? In other words, that's a 10 with 28 zeros after it. Which is, which I, I don't know if you understand math, but that's more than there are molecules in the universe. In other words, it's completely impossible. Not going to happen. That one guy over thousands of years of human history is going to have widely separated prophetic events foretold about him, and yet they all come true in one guy. And Jesus has over 300 specific things said about him, and they all come true. He is the seed of the woman. He's the son of Judah. He's the son of David, the son of God. He had a ministry who began, that began in Galilee and ended with his rejection and death. And God used heinous evil committed against his own son to bring about restoration and forgiveness of all the evil of all the people who have ever lived, who have ever sinned, if they will simply put their trust in him. And that is what Christmas is all about. That is the reason we celebrate Jesus' birth. It's the certain knowledge that although things in this world are not as they should be, and we all know that, that D-Day has happened, and the Allies advance, and evil is being rolled back all over the planet as people put their trust in Jesus. And one day... The commander of the armies will arrive. And when he does, evil will finally be conquered. In fact, it will be conquered in such a way as to bring it to a final and complete end. The earth on which evil people lived will be destroyed. Evil people who refused the offer of forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration of relationship with God, will be cast into a place from which they will never escape. Evil devils will be cast in there with them. 
The sun which gave its light and heat to allow evil to be perpetuated will be destroyed. The moon which gave its light by which evil men could participate in evil at night will be destroyed. The earth and all of its works and everything in the universe will be burned up and destroyed. And then a new heavens and a new earth will bring, be brought forth in which, as Peter says, righteousness dwells. It doesn't just visit, it dwells there. And why will all of that happen? Because God announced that though people are evil, though we are sinners, though we have rebelled against them, he has to judge, but he wants to love us. And because he loves us, he sent his son at Christmas 2,000 years ago to be the concrete example of his love and the means by which, by putting our trust in him, we could experience the restoration, forgiveness, and reconciliation with him that he wants for us. That we would escape judgment and instead experience the joy of the new heavens and the new earth in his presence forever. Christmas is the first little breaking through of the kingdom of God into the world. And, it's, and it, as it comes in fulfillment of all these massive promises that are made, it gives us certain hope that God's promises, which are not yet fulfilled, you know, we look at it and go, well, gosh, it's been 2,000 years since Christmas. You know what? It had been at least twice that long between Abraham and Jesus. And yet, Jesus still came. Jesus still came. Jesus is still coming. Amen? Amen. And that is God's reason for Christmas, is that restoration can come to all who put their trust in Him through Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, born of Mary, of the line of David, the child of Abraham, who began his ministry in Galilee, who was rejected and crucified and rose from the dead, that you and I might have eternal life, which is God's Christmas gift to us. Eternal life and forgiveness and reconciliation if we will but turn from our sin and put our trust in the Savior. And so my question for you, if you're here this morning, is real simple. Have you received the gift? Have you received the gift? Have you ever put your personal trust in Jesus Christ who came to be the sacrifice for sin? Who came to be the arrival and announcement of the coming of the kingdom of God, breaking into human history to defeat sin and evil and death and bring all those things to an end, not just for us, but for the whole world? you ever received that gift? If you've never received that gift, you can do that real simply by simply putting your trust in Jesus Christ, saying, I believe what the Bible says about your son, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, the Son of Man who was to come, and he came for me. And he died on the cross and was raised from the dead. He died for my sins on that cross. 
and was raised from the dead to give me new life. And at the moment that you personally put your trust in those things, that Jesus is the Son of God who died on the cross for your sins and was raised from the dead, that moment you're adopted into God's family, granted forgiveness of your sin, and given the promise with certainty that you will stand before God in heaven for all eternity. And if you have received that gift, then you know the God who entered into this screwed up, messed up, sinful, evil world. And you know that he came just as he promised, and one day he's coming again. And so every year at Christmas is an opportunity to be reminded God kept his promises. And he kept them in a way that no one could have predicted. And that to say it beat the odds against it happening is a dramatic understatement. God orchestrated this all the way through because he had a plan to save you and me. And we experience that salvation now. And Christmas is a reminder every year of a God who keeps his promises. And so we can be confident will keep his promises to us once more and come again for those he loves. Amen? So let's pray and then let's worship the God who loves us and keeps his word. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us so many predictions in our Old Testament of what Messiah would be like and when he would come and where he would come and what he would do and who he would be. That it's impossible to miss the identity of Jesus as the Son of God, who is the Messiah, born the son of David, born the seed of the woman, born in fulfillment of prophecy over thousands of years. Father, help us not to miss seeing the glory of Jesus, even as the baby born in the manger, the announcement that the kingdom of God has come. Father, help us to worship you this morning as we look forward to the final establishment in full of the kingdom of God and to the full salvation that you have promised. And we pray in Jesus' name.